Long ago, I preached a message to you on why there's no such thing as a compatible couple. And there's no such thing as compatibility because we're all different. We're all so very different, and once you get married, then you really discover how different you are. A young man I had lunch with this week, he asked me, he says, Pastor, how can I protect my marriage? He's a He's just had his first anniversary, and he's just wanting to, to build a godly home and a good home. And I said, well, we talked about that for a little while, how to protect your marriage. And I said, now in September, I'm going to be preaching a message on that, how to protect your marriage. So why don't you be sure and watch online, and I'll send you the link that day so that you and your wife can watch that after you go to church at your church. And so it was important to understand that there's no such thing as compatible people. So we had all these incompatible people. And if you've read the story of our nation's founding, as they gathered for that first Continental Congress, there was all kinds of disagreement and there was all kinds of disunity. And even to the point that the deist Benjamin Franklin had to say, look, we've begun this thing in prayer how do we expect to finish this thing and establish a great nation without praying? And so the whole Continental Congress gathered to pray before the Lord. I saw a Time Magazine article one time about football teams and compatibility and incompatibility on the team. And one of the pictures showed one of the football players who had just made a, a bad mistake on the field, and the Time article went through the excruciating detail of what he had done. But what stood out to me that the player was white and there were two black players on either side of him with encouraging him. And this was the caption underneath that picture. What counts most in creating a successful team is not how compatible its players are, but how they deal with incompatibility. And so how do we deal with incompatibility? How do we deal with people who are different than what we are? How do we deal with people who think differently, process differently, or even want different things? It's what makes our Constitution so unusual. Listen to this statement, and it should be on the screen. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the pursuit of happiness. I, I stood at Thomas Jefferson's grave not too long ago, a few years ago, Benjamin and I did, and as we had walked down to his grave at Monticello, and we looked at it, and I said, you know, Ben, it's a shame that Jefferson didn't recognize how profound the truths were that he was writing. He wasn't known necessarily as a great orator. Not really, not many people respected him for his oratory, but they did respect him for his writing. And I said, he wrote something so powerful that even slaveholders could agree to, but they didn't see the incompatibility of what they were fighting for and what they wrote and how they were living their lives. And the call of a passionate follower of Christ is to allow the Holy Spirit to look in those areas of our lives where we believe the truth and we hold to the truth, but there are conflicts or incompatibility between how we're living our lives and what we believe. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, two passages of Scripture that I'd like to look at in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. 
The Bible says we know very well that we are not set right with God by rule-keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Let's read that together. We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule-keeping, but through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here was a church that believed we were saved by grace and faith alone, but someone had come into them and it convinced them there were certain rules you had to keep if you were going to be saved. And if we're not careful, we will allow, listen, we will allow the wrong people to disciple us and to shape our thinking. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. He's speaking to them about freedom from the law, freedom from the demands of the law, that you had to do all of these things to be saved. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Would you read that last sentence with me from the scripture this morning? And let's begin with the word use. Use your freedom to serve one another in love. Look at your neighbor this morning, and you don't have to quote this to them, but look at your neighbor on either side of you. If you can, without hurting your neck, look at the people behind you. There's nobody behind me, so I'm looking at all of you. I'm to use my freedom to serve you. And you are to use your freedom to serve everyone else. God says we've been given freedom. Is this not somewhat of a contradiction? We've been given freedom to do what? To serve. I didn't mean to go high on that right there, but I wanted you to get it. I mean, we've been delivered from slaves in order to be servants of one another and servants of God. Would you join me in prayer right now? Father, in the name of Jesus, this is a challenging word on the 4th of July. And I pray that in Christ's name that you will help us to hear it. And would you help me to deliver it, Lord, as it were with a spoonful of sugar so that it will go down sweetly in our mouths and yet do deep in our hearts what you desire for this word to accomplish. And I pray, give us open ears to hear and hearts that right now will say, Lord, I am committed to following you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen and amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I remember the first time that in deep South Georgia in the 70s, that I began to reach black young people from the local high schools, led them to Christ, and we were all white church, and coming to my pastor and saying, we have to welcome black people into our church, and our pastor said, I've been praying that God would make us a multiracial church, but where we lived in deep south Georgia was a very segregated part of town. Literally, blacks lived on one side of the community and whites lived on the other side of the community. I remember I brought in a group of Christian artists to sing, and, and I told the pastor ahead of time, I says, now this is a racially mixed group, but I believe this will help us accomplish what we want to accomplish with the students. 
And one of the things that I loved about youth ministry and student ministry, and I still love about it, is students aren't fossilized. Students aren't set in stone. And oftentimes, the older we get, our favorite hymn gets, I shall not be, I shall not be moved. And by golly, we mean it, we will not be moved. But students are willing to, to listen and to learn and to grow, and revival broke out. It wasn't long before one campus, I was meeting with an average, and we kept these numbers, an average of 388 students every week on campus. Our high school band director gave his heart to Christ. And every year while I was there, they won the national football championship. And across the nation, our high school band would march off the field playing Andre Crouch's To God Be the Glory, and people would stand and clap as the familiar song was played. Our, our other high school campus, revival broke out there. And then at the college campus, I flew to Springfield. There was a brand new department established for the Assemblies of God called Chi Alpha, and I flew to Springfield to meet with their first director. His name was Dennis Gaylor, and Dennis and I became friends, and I said, Dennis, how do I start a Chi Alpha? And he looked at me and says, I don't have the foggiest clue. I'm brand new at this too. And so by faith and by prayer, we began pioneering campus ministries. I remember that move of God, and and I saw what God did in students' hearts, and I saw as grandparents and parents embraced and welcomed what God was doing in their lives because they saw change. But boy, was it uncomfortable for a period of time. It challenged us in more ways than you can think. If there's one biblical conclusion that I've come to is this, freedom demands a virtuous life. Freedom demands a virtuous life. You see, people who are not people of virtue cannot live in freedom. For what the world calls is freedom leads to slavery, leads to death. That sort of thing that we want where we demand our own way, where we demand what we want when we want it, it leads us in the paths of destruction. C.S. Lewis often said, hell is that place where people get their own way. I've saw hell manifested in the way hateful people have responded to the Supreme Court's ruling about pro-life decisions and overturning Roe v. Wade. I watched on the news as a young woman who was an abortion survivor. She wasn't even saying anything. She just held a sign thanking God for, for Roe v. Wade being overturned also stating that she was an abortion survivor when they interviewed her on the news. She had actually survived a failed abortion attempt. And the anger and the venom and the obscenities and the hatred that was being spewed at this young woman for simply holding the sign. And I remember thinking, nobody wants to go to hell because that's what hell looks like along with the gnashing of the teeth and the fire that is never quenched and the darkness that is there. We see the manifestation of that darkness. In Philemon chapter 14, excuse me, Philemon verse 14, Paul wrote to, to Philemon, he says, though I could demand something of you, I won't do anything unless you agree to it first. I want your act of kindness to come from your heart and not to be something you feel forced to do. Boy, that's a powerful statement. 
It's not one that I can imagine many political leaders saying today. It's not one that I can imagine many talking heads on, whether it's Fox or CNN or MSNBC, saying today, I won't do anything unless you agree to do it first. Do you know how challenging that is to sit still when you know some wrong needs to be righted? Do you know how challenging it is? Philemon, Philemon was, a, was a man who owned a slave by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus had given his heart to Christ. He ran away from Philemon. He came to Paul. Paul did the right thing. He says, Onesimus, you are my brother in Christ. You are my equal in Christ. There is no slave. There is no free. There's no Jew nor Gentile in Christ. But the right thing for you to do according to the law, even though the law is unjust, is for you to go back to Philemon. And so Paul writes a letter to Philemon and sends it by the hand of Onesimus with this powerful statement that's left written for you and me, listen to me, as the word of God for all of us, not just for Philemon. As the word of the Lord for all of us, I want your act of kindness to come from your heart and not to be something you feel forced to do. You see, sin will force you to do things you never thought you would do. Sin will force you to go further than you ever thought you would go. And sin will keep you there longer than you ever thought you would be there. And sin will ultimately destroy your life and send your soul to hell. But God, by grace, gives us the freedom to choose whether or not we will serve Him or not. You see, virtue leads to humility. Virtue leads to that that place of meekness and humility that we admire about Jesus. We know that meekness is not weakness, but it is strength under control. He could have called 10,000 angels, everything held together by Him, but still His strength was under control. And it's the reason Jesus is always referred to so often as Jesus meek and mild. Not that He was weak, but humility, listen now, humility doesn't come from us liking one another. Years and years ago, I preached a message on here, because I love you doesn't mean I like you. There are a lot of people when they saw that sermon title were just simply blown away and says, well, of course, if you love somebody, you got to like them. Do you like Putin? I'm seeing heads shaking here just like little bobblehead dolls on the dashboards. We pray for our enemies, we bless our enemies, but humility doesn't come from liking one another. Unity doesn't come naturally because disunity is what's natural. Because we each want our own way. And people who understand mobs and people who understand crowd psychology know if you can get them united on one thing, you can later bust them up by getting them divided on something else. It's just simple Psych 101. It's simple sociology 101. But in Christ, we understand that biblical community, listen, biblical community compels us to pursue gospel unity. Now, when I use the word gospel, I use that intentionally because the gospel is good news. 
The gospel is good news for all human beings, red, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in His sight. And when I understand that if I want unity, if I want community, that it can only be built upon the unchanging Word of God as Jesus preached and taught it and helped us to see how He lived it. There's always reasons for us to dislike one another. I remember one Sunday morning I came into church and I had on a Georgia Bulldogs tie. And somebody said to me, he says, I just hate it when you talk about Georgia. And I went, well, there are three things I'm going to talk about. Jesus, my family, and the Georgia Bulldogs. You see, there's always reasons to dislike one another. There's always reasons that we can find to pick apart. And you want to know why we can find reasons to pick one another apart? It's because we want everybody to be like us. I mean, for some people, their their personal anthem is, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. So, humility is that virtue Unity comes from pursuing gospel unity. What does the Bible say about Jesus and our salvation? Benjamin Franklin that I referred to earlier today was influenced in his life a lot by the preacher Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather was a Puritan preacher, a firebrand of the gospel. He was later influenced a lot by George Whitfield, and as far as we know, he never really surrendered his life to Christ and was born again. But Benjamin Franklin wrote that nobody taught him more about humility than Cotton Mather. Once he had gone to see Pastor Mather, and while he was in his house talking with him about some essential truths of life, it was time to go. And so young Ben Franklin stood up to turn around to walk out of the house, and Pastor Mather was going, stoop, stoop, stoop. And Ben Franklin didn't pay any attention. He just walked right into a beam. He said, my head went thump on the wall. And Mather looked at him and he said to him, you're young and you have the world before you. Stoop as you go through it and you will avoid many a hard thump. Humility. It's a virtue. When somebody tells me that I'm a Christian that if I'm a Christian, I will vote this way on a certain thing, there's almost an immediate wall that goes up. Because then I feel like somebody's trying to manipulate me rather than talk to me and reason with me about the issue before us. Rather instead, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, Christ encourages you and His love comforts you. God's Spirit unites you and you are concerned for others. Let's read that verse together because this is you. This is not me it's talking about. It's it's us. It's, It's us as individuals. So let's read it together. Christ encourages you. Who is you? Me. You. Christ encourages you. His love comforts you. God's Spirit unites you, and you are concerned for others. Somebody say, come on, victory. I mean, this is true of our lives, isn't it? I want it to be true of my marriage. I want it to be true of my children. I want it to be true of my pastoral ministry, the community I live in. I want it to even be true of those that I 
are called, that call themselves my enemies. First of all, the Bible is saying here that encouragement is found in Christ. I love Barnabas. His nickname meant the son of encouragement. So every time somebody saw Barnabas, they called out, hey, Barney, hey, Barnabas, they were saying, you're an encouragement in my life. So God calls us to encourage one another. Where does that come from? Romans chapter 15, verse 5, may God who gives, say that with me, may God who gives, say it one more time, may God who gives this patience and encouragement help you to live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God gives us this kind of encouragement. And our identity is not in Woodland Church. Our identity is not in the Assemblies of God. Our identity is not in Michigan. Our identity is not in the United States of America. Our identity is in and flows from who Jesus Christ is. Can we give him a hand of praise for that this morning? That's where our identity is rooted at. Comfort flows from the love of God. This verse tells us we're called to love our neighbor and put our neighbor first, and in the body of Christ to put one another first. We all know this from weddings, because 1 Corinthians 13 is often read there, but do you realize that 1 Corinthians 13 was not written for a wedding? It was written for a church that was divided against one another into several different factions, honeycombed. So Paul says to this church, if I could speak all the languages of earth and angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. My wife said one time, I can barely stand to listen to these talking heads on television. They just shout and they scream they're just like clanging cymbals. There's no love. It's all about getting your eyeballs for advertisers. Third, God's Spirit unites us. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. So there is a certain part. Now look at me. Don't miss this. And by the way, all of these notes are in the app if you want to look at it later. There's a certain part that you and I have to play. We have to make every effort to keep ourselves united. And then, fourthly, be devoted to one another. I love that word, devoted. Chuck, I'm devoted to you. Whether you do good or whether you do bad. And Chuck, this is my promise to you and everyone else in here. If you fail miserably... I'll be a better friend and pastor to you then than I am now. Because that's what it means to be devoted to one another. Not in good times, but in the best of times and the worst of times. Be devoted to each other like a loving family and excel as showing respect for each other. Men, when do we stop standing up for women? Men, when do we stop opening doors for women? Parents, when do we stop demanding that our children show respect to other adults and say, yes, sir, and no, sir? It's not a sign of weakness to show respect, nor is it a sign of weakness to receive respect. It's a sign of weakness when we don't know how to respect one another anymore. When we don't know how to respect our bodies, our minds, our marriages, 
we don't know how to respect, and the further we pull away from the cross, the less we know how to respect. Virtue demands humility. Humility is the foundation of community. I love what Paul said. Some of these traveling teachers returned and made me very happy by telling me about your faithfulness and that you're living according to the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following the truth. Gospel unity matters. Let's give him one more hand of praise this morning. So secondly, virtue, unity, community, it all says then we have to focus upon Christ. Our focus has to be upon Jesus. A song imprinted in my soul from my childhood days is, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I find myself so many times from the recesses of my soul and my memory, that song comes up, and it just serves as a reminder. Keep your eyes upon Christ, for Christ, according to Philippians 2.1, encourages you, His love comforts you, God's Spirit unites you, and you are concerned for others. Let's look at three other things here. First of all, the mind of Christ. Somebody asked me one time years and years ago, Pastor How do I get the mind of Christ? Now, ask yourself, how would you tell somebody that? How do I get the mind of Christ? And this was my answer. You don't get the mind, look at me, you don't want to miss this. You don't get the mind of Christ unless you pursue the heart of Christ. You don't get the mind of Christ unless you pursue the heart of Christ. What does Christ love? What does Christ treasure? What was Christ willing to do for what he treasured? Sometimes we think it takes a certain kind of sacrificial person or it takes a certain kind of smart person. The wonderful thing about the Bible is it is the deepest, it is the most profound book. Its truths are so profound that even today, Books are turned out by the millions trying to mine the depths of the Bible, and yet it's so simple that even a child can comprehend it, which tells me this, high IQ is not next to godliness. I had a church in the state of Washington, a large multi-campus church, call and ask if I would become their pastor, and And I said, how did you get my name? And they told me who gave me their name. I says, how did you come to call me? He says, well, we hired a headhunter group, and they went through all these stats about you and says, this is the right person to to call to lead your church. I asked them this one question. I said to them, I says, have you fasted and have you prayed about this? And they said, no, we're just going off of what the headhunter said. And I said to them what I said to this church years ago, I would never come to pastor a congregation that did not believe in prayer and fasting. You see, high IQ algorithms and metrics are not how you measure godliness. 
You measure godliness by the heart of Christ, and when you have the heart of Christ, you will have the mind of Christ by the authority, according to 1 Corinthians 1.10, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. And the purposes of God, we have written them down at Woodland, we believe is that everybody matters to God and everybody deserves a presentation of the gospel and everybody needs to be baptized to become a part of a local church and everybody needs a biblical compass to help them continue to grow and everybody has a spiritual gift that God has given them so that they can serve in ministry and everybody needs to learn how to share their faith in a compelling way so they can lead others to Jesus and in all of these things, we do it for the glory of God as we live as sacrifices of worship for Him. Can we give Him a hand of praise for that this morning? Those are the purposes of God for His church. It's what's written in the Bible. And the love of God. Oh, the love of God. Martin Luther and his family devotions was reading the story of Abraham taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him there on the mountain. And his wife, Katie, looked at him and says, I just can't believe that story. God would never do that to his son. And Luther looked at her and said, but Katie, he did. If you want to understand the love of God, don't get all the mushy songs on your radio or your iPod or your iPhone, but look at that cross this morning and understand how much God loves not just you, but your lost friends and neighbors. The encouragement of Christ. Oh, those football players. I can't remember what he did wrong. I just remember that picture. According to the Time News Magazine article, he made a really bad play. But here these two other massive football players were their hands on his shoulders. And it's how we handle our incompatibility. You know what that says to me? It says a truth that you know, but I want to remind you of. Encouragement makes it a lot easier to live in this world, doesn't it? When you're going through a difficult time, when you're hospitalized, when your family's going through financial struggle, when you feel lonely, when you feel like you've messed up, it just helps when somebody comes along and puts their hands on your shoulders and encourages you and lets you know you really matter and they're going to be there. And if you failed, they're going to be a better friend to you then than they've ever been before. And then unity leads us to joy. Unity leads us to joy. COVID was an awful time for our country. And I'm not talking just about the disease. COVID did something to us in America. Injustices, riots, murder in the streets, the burning, the looting of businesses and homes. The rancor of our political system. The anger. Becky and I made over 200 videos during that time because we wanted to keep our church focused on what really matters. 
So after day after day, we were scrambling for new ideas, writing new scripts, pulling things together, and making videos, and we had no idea that it would just be seen by this church, but by many others. The Billy Graham Center at Wheaton University just completed a study that talks about how COVID divided churches in America. The result of their study said that people are sorting themselves ideologically and politically. Listen, don't miss this. Sorting themselves ideologically and politically rather than biblically. Politics will never bring unity to the church. Ideology will never bring unity to the church. Politics will never bring unity to America. Ideology will never bring unity to America. Community must be established around gospel unity, that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, and He came to show us how to live a life that is free from sin and overcomes. And in that freedom, we don't condemn somebody if they refuse to believe, but we pray for our enemies and we love our enemies like Jesus did as they nailed the nails into his hands at Calvary. He says, Father, forgive them for what they don't know what they're doing. My enemy is not the Muslim. My enemy is not the Hindu. My enemy is not a Democrat or a Republican. My enemy has a name and his name is Lucifer. Had Christ defeated him at Calvary and we can build community around gospel unity. <laughs> Hallelujah. The Billy Graham Center goes on to say that people are being discipled more by their talking heads on television than they are by the pastors in their churches. I understand that. I understand that because there are hours upon hours spent in front of television. And time after time when I ask people about their Bible reading, about their prayer time, when I ask people about fasting, journaling, Oh, pastor, I just don't have time. I don't have time. But inevitably soon I'll get an article or a video clip. <sighs> I wish I'd have bought my iPhone. It's over there. But do you realize there are 10,000 eyeballs? Look at this. Look at this. I haven't been looking at the camera enough this morning. I'm talking to you too. <laughs> there are 10,000 eyeballs behind this device. And you want to know why they're behind this device? Because they're looking for what I click on, they're looking for what I read, and they want to bring me back. So there are algorithms out there that are designed to bring me back to stuff that would upset me or make me angry or agitate me because as one journalist that is a close friend of mine told me, says, if it bleeds, it leads. Good news never sells, but mad, bad news does. If we can make people angry, they will read our papers. Christ hasn't come to make you angry. Christ has come to set you free. Can we give him another hand of praise this morning? One of my favorite cities to visit, and honey, if you'll come onto the platform, one of my favorite cities to visit is Rome. In her book, Barbara Burkhoff wrote, Grapes of Wrath or Grace. She writes about a group of American tourists that are touring Rome, Italy as a, as a group. And 
They're getting ready to cross this busy 12-lane circular boulevard. Becky and I have been there, and I know exactly what she's talking about, and I can see it in my eye. And she tells them, she says, we must walk together as a group. If you try to cross one by one, they'll run you over one by one. But if we cross as a group, then they're afraid that we're going to damage their car. If we cross as a group, they're afraid we're going to damage their car. One by one, they're going to hit you and keep going. Sounds like parts of our community, right? But if we cross as a group, do you realize the power of community and of unity? The Holy Spirit indwells us. He forms our character. The apostle writes, I'm asking you, my friends, in Philippians 2, 2, I'm asking you, my friends, that you will be joined together in perfect unity. One heart, one passion, and united in one love. One heart, one passion, one love. Say it with me. One heart, one passion, one love. One more time. One heart, one passion, one love. Look at your neighbor now and say it. One heart, one passion, one love. Rodney, one heart, one passion, one love. I'm praying in the spirit inside right now. That's just, my soul is bubbling because I have a vision of that. And I lived it in one of the most racially charged places I've ever lived deep in the heart of South Georgia in the 1970s when people who were a member of the Ku Klux Klan decided the Klan was more important than the church and the cross and left our church. When I was personally threatened, I want to tell you something. There's nothing that scares the hell out of the devil more than a church with one heart, one passion, and one love that gathers around the cross. Hell cannot defeat us. When we used to sing a song, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And I pray that one day our unity will someday be restored. How many of you remember that song? I, I want to sing it. I know it's not the way we plan, but can I? Go for it. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get the right key. I have no idea. <laughs> we are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. Is that the right key? No? You want to put it in the right key? (laughs) And I pray that our unity may someday be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. 
We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And I pray that our unity may someday be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Hallelujah, hallelujah. (laughs) Praise God. That day is coming again because the Bible says in the last days, God is going to send a revival. So don't be deceived. Don't let those... Don't let those who say there's going to be another civil war be the final word. God's answer is found in Christ. And Christ has sent us his church. I give you some growth work. I'll give it to you real quickly. Number one, worship God who endowed us with the certain inalienable rights that we have. Acknowledge that everyone and everything belongs to God and acknowledge that all we have comes from Him. Would you stand with me? And let me pray with you today. Jesus, we stand in Your presence this morning. And I pray that You'll show us Pray that you'll show us, Lord, how to be angry at sin, at the devil, without being angry at sinners, Lord. I pray, Jesus, that you'll help us to see them as you saw them, as lost, enslaved, held captive in chains, in darkness. But you never condescended to them, Lord. You became one of us. You lived with us. You walked with us. You loved us. I'm amazed. And so now, Lord, as we get ready to take communion, how can we take communion, Lord, unless we first covenant together to live in these virtues, to walk together in unity, and to be civil even when people disagree with us. So I ask you, begin with us and forgive us of our sins and lift up our eyes to behold the glory of what we are called to be, the bride of Christ, a church only through Christ without spot or wrinkle. And if you've never given your heart to Jesus this morning, 
please don't judge Jesus by our failures. Please don't judge Jesus by our mistakes. Please don't even judge the good news that Jesus brought by how poorly at times we've obeyed the gospel. But instead, look carefully at him who loved you so much that he does the greatest miracle of all. He forgives your sins and gives you his righteousness in exchange for your unrighteousness. So would you pray this prayer with me at home, on the road, if you're watching later than today, or if you're here in this room. Say, Heavenly Father, I want to be liberated, emancipated, set free, and forgiven of my sin. So I ask you, Jesus, to come into my heart and make me a brand new creation. Let all old things pass away and all things become new. And as much as I know how, I give my heart and life to you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, would you reach over and take these elements this morning that you picked up on your way into church. Let's peel back to cellophane and let's hold on till we give the Lord thanks for his body. <clears throat> this bread represents the body given for you. The body wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The body whose hands touched the leper. The body whose hands were laid upon the children and he prayed for them and blessed them. The body that sweat great drops of blood for you in the Garden of Gethsemane. The body whose hands and feet were pierced and side was wounded. As he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This bread represents the body raised again on the third day. And this bread represents what we are called to be, the body of Christ. Let's break and eat together. This cup represents what Martin Luther said to Katie, his wife. But Katie, he did. This cup represents the blood of humanity and yet the spotless blood of the Lamb. This cup represents a flyover of all of history when Abel first brought a sacrifice acceptable to the Lord. When Abraham took his son up Mount Moriah and God provided a ram instead. This cup represents the blood 
of every sacrificial lamb that was fulfilled in the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This blood represents your life and my life, covered and healed by the stripes and the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's drink it and worship this morning. <coughs> Hallelujah. 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 Now, Father, I ask you to bless us as we go forth to celebrate our independence tomorrow. And may we, Jesus, respond like Job did, who when he was found to be right in God's sight and just in God's sight, did not say to his friends, I told you so, but instead prayed for his friends and you blessed him doubly of everything he ever lost. May you bless this church as we go forth in your name. Amen, amen, and amen.